Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Job. Uh, we are going to continue on our study of the book uh, of Job. Uh, next week is Easter Sunday, so as always, we want you to invite your friends and neighbors and family. I won't say this as we uh, kind of go in. Plan on getting here early. Uh, those of you who are regular attenders here, uh, try to park either in the lower lot or back in the, the grassy area on the other side of the can-do center. Uh, especially if you're a two-car family, guys, I'd appreciate if you'd park back there. And then plan on next Sunday moving up and squeezing in. That way, as visitors are with us, uh, we have freed up some seats for them. Also this morning, got some exciting news I want to share with you. Uh, after the service was over last week and everybody was kind of headed home, uh, we had a few people up here toward the front that were, were talking. And uh, after I'd kind of finished up and I was coming back up here, I got some of the most amazing news and so Sunday morning after the service was over, uh, Rosie, Miss Rosie Rostelli, uh, asked Jesus to be her Lord and Savior. And so we are super excited for Miss Rosie. We are super excited for her and hope that this is just uh, one of many more that we get to celebrate uh, who have given their lives to the Lord. And so we're excited for her and excited for her family. We're praying for her. I know uh, last week she was, she just kept saying, I'm just so happy, I'm just so happy. And, um, and we just pray that that never dies. And so I hope for the rest of us that it does kind of rekindle thoughts of what it was when we were first saved. I think sometimes we just get kind of in the routine of things and maybe sometimes miss out on the significance of them. And so let us remember uh, our first love. Let us remember the day of our salvation and the joy and the peace and just the, 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 just the, the emotions of that and the knowledge that Jesus had, has freed us from our sins, that we are forgiven, uh, and the hope and joy uh, that we have in that. So Miss Rosie, we come alongside you as our sister in Christ and just pray for you and uh, if we can encourage you or be of any help to you at all, uh, I'm sure I speak on behalf of all of us, we would be more than happy to, to do that for you. So again, happy for Miss Rosie. Uh, Book of Job is where we're going to be at this morning. Um, you know, it is one of those things for us that uh, a few weeks ago I, w- I was reading to Eric and we were sitting in bed at night. And, uh, and, and I, was, I started this book. It was a book that he liked. It's a book that we have read. And I, I get started, and he stops me. He says, Dad, that's not how it starts. And I'm like, well, son, it says right here. And I read the first line again. He says, no, it starts by once upon a time. And I said, well, son, that's not all. He said, Dad, it starts by once upon a time. And it's, it's an Eric E, so you know, you got to kind of, he says, once upon a time, dad. And I'm like, okay, buddy, once upon a time. And I start reading the book. And you know, that's often how we want to think how life starts for us. Once upon a time, and then it moves into the fairy tale where, where much like Rosie, and I don't know about some of you, but I know like when I was, when I was, uh, when I had given my life to Christ, you know, I thought that was my once upon a time moment. Once upon a time, Andy received Jesus and the free gift of salvation, and now everything's going to be good, like it's going to be easy, and life's going to be, the road is going to be like a freshly paved road, and it's just going to be straight and smooth and no bumps or detours or potholes. But my story begins much like another man's story does, when it wasn't just like once upon a time, it was like, and there was a day, there was a day. And you know, in the text, as we all the way back to chapter one, those are really worth, that's the words that were used when things began to go bad for Job. And there was a day, 
and there was a day, and, and in that day, and we would gloss over those words. Like I, I, in all the times I've read through Job, I've never really stopped to think about those words, and there was a day. You know, it might have been like any other day. But what if we would have said, and there was a day, and that day was September 11th, 2001. All of a sudden, that day carries some significance, doesn't it? If I were to say on a day last week, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you what I had for breakfast. Probably wouldn't be able to tell you the clothes that I had on or what I even did that day. But I could tell you on the morning of September 11th, 2001, I can give you specific details about my day that was what? You know, I mean, we're looking back 17 years ago, almost 17 years ago. And many of you are the same way. You can go back and I can remember where I was at. I remember what I was doing. I can remember the exact location. I can remember my dorm room, going back and, and watching these, the, the, the replays on the news channels of these planes flying into the World Trade Centers. I can remember the shots of the Pentagon. I can remember the shots of the field in Pennsylvania where, where those brave uh, people overtook that plane and, and, it, and caused it to crash down in that field. And we don't know where maybe it was planned on going, but the countless lives that were saved by their brave actions. And some of us have those days. You know, on a day, and, and if you were to give the date that Job's life changed, you would say, on this day, and it began as a day like any other. I got up on that September 11th, 2001. I got up, I went at an 8 a.m. class. So I get up, and I'm, it was an English class. And so I'm going to English comp. And I'm walking, and, I'm, I'm on, and it was between, it happened during that hour-long class, and as I was on my way from my 8 o'clock class to my 9 o'clock class, one of my teammates said, hey, Andy, did you, find, did you see what happened this morning? And I said, no, and he said, man, someone hit the World Trade Towers. So I run back to my room, and, and, and confession, we were stealing cable. <laughs> but we had cable at that time. And I flipped on the TV, and it was this little 13-inch tube TV, and I was right in front of it, and I skipped my 9 o'clock class, I skipped my 10 o'clock class, because I was so uh, struck and distraught. Like, you know, as a kid who grew up in a time of peace, like, people didn't do that to America, Right? And I can remember everything about that. And Job's day, when Job's life began to unravel, was a day like any other. You know, I can picture Job getting up, he's having a cup of coffee, maybe he's staying at the kitchen sink with that first cup, and he's looking out the window, and you know, Job owned a lot of property, and so he's probably looking out on his farm, and his employees are out, and they're sending the, 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 the cattle out to graze, and he's got his team of oxen, and they're out here, and they're plowing a field because it's about time to, to maybe start planting for the, for, the, for the harvest, and then he's looking out over here, and in the distant gate, he's seeing a caravan, one of his caravans of camels, come walking in from a trip because Job owned like an Old Testament trucking company. And so all this is just kind of laying out before him, but unbeknownst to Job, there's a conversation taking place between God and Satan. And, and Satan is, 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 is bringing about this plan to, to, to ruin Job and to discredit God. And so God allows this plan to, to, you know, Satan's attempt. And so Satan comes down and he takes all, the, all Job's possessions. And, and he says, now, now I'll watch Job curse God and die. Except that Job doesn't. 
And so next thing you know, we find on, 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 a, on another day uh, that, that Satan is right back in the presence of God. And he says, hey, you know, uh, he said, God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, yeah, but man, you've just placed this hedge of protection around him. I can't touch him. So what are you going to, you know, how, of course he's not going to curse you. Of course he's going to worship you. A man will do anything for his life, but you touch his life and that man will curse you. And so he basically, God says, well, if you think so, you know, go right ahead. He knew Job. He knew, God knew who he was. So Satan goes and he strikes Job from head to toe with boils. And we can read through the, the rest of the book of Job of all these afflictions that Job, Job endured. And yet the Bible tells us that he, he didn't, he never cursed God. He didn't blame God. He never sinned against God. He had some questions he had some pretty raw emotions through this whole deal, but he never cursed God and never sinned against God. And so if we're not careful, we kind of get in this, this, this area where, where we, we, that we, uh, we skip over these days, but here we have this day of all this, these things that had happened uh, to, the, to the book of Job. And then as if this grief and this uh, 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 pain and, and, and suffering that all this, that Job had lost and his health and everything wasn't bad enough, we have these three friends that come onto the scene with the intent of showing Job sympathy and offering him comfort, except that it doesn't happen. Something goes, something in the best of their intentions goes wrong and, and, and gets lost in the process. And they stay a week, they stare at him, and things only get worse because they opened their mouth. Now stop and think about this for a second. Can you imagine the rejoicing Satan probably did? I mean, it's one thing, you know, he loses everything, he doesn't curse God. Then, he, then Satan, excuse me, strikes his body, he, 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 and he doesn't curse God and die. But he didn't plan on these, on these friends coming in and being partners in crime with him. He wouldn't plan on having all these new partners come in and just heaping all this. And I'm sure that, that Satan's sitting back and just saying, any time now. I mean, Job can't take much more of this. I mean, after all, these three friends have each taken a turn already. Now we're in the midst of the second turn that they're each gonna take. And then unbeknownst to Job, there's gonna be a third time that they're gonna all take a turn. And he's just saying that Job can't take much more of this. Eventually, he's gonna snap and he's gonna curse God and he's gonna die. And so now we're in this second round of the verbal assault and, and, and now it's Bildad who, who is getting ready to step up. So uh, Job chapter 18 is where we're gonna read, but let's bow in prayer first. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and, and Lord, as we sang in some of those songs this morning, um, Lord, you know, life is not easy. Like we, we know that, that I wish that life was like black and white, that, that it was either, uh, you know, it was this or that. But Lord, we know that there's oftentimes a lot of gray area in life. And Lord, we often live more in the gray areas of life than we do the black and white areas of life. And Father, I pray that, that, that as we come to your word this morning, that we would find hope and encouragement in it. God, I know that, that there are times when we're looking at these three friends and we're reading about them and, 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 we, and we can hear how harsh and, and how they're rebuking Job and then we get Job's response and, and there are times that, that we honestly just wish Job would kind of give this Sunday school answer that would fill our hearts with, with a feel-good feeling. 
But God, we also know that life is real and what Job is experiencing is real and that we encounter moments like these when, when we so desperately want to believe the feel-good part of it, but our emotions just aren't lining up with, with the way we truly feel and the way we want to feel are often at odds against one another. And God, I pray that as we have gone through this study, Lord, that it, would, that it would strengthen our faith, that we wouldn't just be slaves to our emotions, but God, we would be people of your promises. That God, we would see the promises of God and we would know the promises of God. And God, we wouldn't cling so closely to just the emotional side of it, but God, we would cling to the fact that you are who you profess to be, that you are the, the, the savior of the world, that you are the, the sovereign God, that on this day, when we commemorate today on Palm Sunday, it was when you made your triumphant entry into Jerusalem, knowing that you were gonna go and die for the sins of all mankind, that we would no longer live in the bondage of, of, of slavery to sin, but God, we could live in the freedom that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray today that as we sang this morning, that we would know who we can turn our eyes to, that we can know who it is that we can, that we can run to, that we would set our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, who has gone before us. And so, Father, I pray that we would not get lost in this world, that we wouldn't get lost in, in, in the busyness of it, that we wouldn't get lost in the gray areas of it, that we would not go astray, but God, we would set our eyes toward you. And so, Father, we pray this morning that, that as we read the, the, the text and as we study it, Lord, that you would encourage us, Lord. I pray, Father, that, that you would correct us, Lord. We, I'll, I'll just say that I stand before you today, Lord, knowing that I am not perfect, and that, God, you are continuing to do your work in me. And so, God, I pray that, that if there are others like me, Father, that you would just continue to do your work in us. And, God, that we would uh, just draw closer and closer to you. For it's in Christ's name we ask it all. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, Bildad's about to take his second turn here. And if you remember in chapter, uh, chapter 8, Bildad begins by calling Job a windbag. He said, Job, you're just full of hot air, man. And, and, and today, it's not a whole lot different. Look at, at, at chapter 18. He says, then Bildad, the, 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 uh, the Shuite, answered and said, how long will you hunt for words? Consider them, uh, consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You, you who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? And again, you know, he's coming at him from the same aspect of, 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 you know, being a windbag, of saying things. And Bildad's like, you know, this is so repetitious and over and over again, it's just the same thing, Job. And clearly, Bildad is no longer interested in Job's pain. Like, he's not interested in the suffering that Job is encountering. Bildad right now, along with Zophar and Eliphaz, the friends, their only real purpose right now is to prove to Job that they are the ones who are right. That there is some hidden sin, that Job has some ulterior thing going on, and God is punishing him. And, and so, uh, you know, here's how Bildad thinks. Bildad thinks that God is just and fair. He's not wrong in that. God is just and fair, is he not? He is just and fair. 
but he thinks that God not only punishes the wicked, he blesses the righteous. If you repent, God will bless you and relieve you of your affliction. If you don't repent, he'll keep on judging you and your pain will continue. But here's the snag. Job is experiencing these things not because of any hidden sin. Like Job's not a perfect guy, but what he is suffering from specifically is not a direct result of some hidden sin in his life that he's refusing to repent of. You know, and but like so many today, Bildad's theology does not leave room for mystery. It doesn't leave room for these gray areas of life where things don't fit neatly into this box or this category, and and or, or and we don't and so he he finds himself struggling with this, and so those that that that. Uh, for, for, for guys like Bildad, you know, for him, everything's black and white. It fits nicely in some little box or some little situation where this would be the response. If you obey, you are blessed. Those in God's will will enjoy prosperity and health. But if you suffer, you're obviously out of God's will. You are sinning and therefore need to repent. But to be honest, like, that mentality is, a, is flawed theology, it's not right. I mean, think. let's go back to some of the things that, that he believed. He believed, one, that God was just and fair. And God is just and fair. We are not just and fair. We're not just people. Matter of fact, we were, Ashley and I were having a conversation about something the other day, and it was one of those things where, you know, you, you, you want people to, you know, judge you filled with grace, but we can, but someone else can do the same thing I'm doing, and I have a completely different attitude toward their actions than I do my own, and we're doing the same exact thing. You know, we're not completely just or if someone we don't know does this sin we deal more harshly with them than if my best friend does that sin and I'm like oh well, we just need to cut them a little bit of slack we're not just we're not fair God is then he also says that God blesses you know if you serve God you know that he'll bless you and and while we know that you know God does bless and and, and but he doesn't always relieve our afflictions the moment we confess something but also you know and so there's this whole mentality that obviously Job is being punished because he's living in sin you know God is sovereign and almighty if he wanted all people well then all people would be well. If he wanted all people to be without sickness and pain, then all people would be without sickness and pain. He is sovereign and rules over all things. And, and, but, and, but, but God's running the show, and he deliberately allows sickness for mysterious reasons beyond our understanding. And we can sit back and we can say, well, you know, we know that these bodies are, are marred by sin and, and sin it has its effect on the physical body. And so we know that because of sin, you know, there's sickness and there's uh, disease and there's things that the body breaks down and ultimately that sin, you know, leads, the, leads to death. But there are also times where God may allow certain things to take place in a, in a person's life. He permits pain. There are times when, for reasons that are clearly revealed, he tests us, and the point is, he's in charge. 
It's not necessarily, God doesn't just respond to us. So like, if I go and sin, God's like, well, Andy did something boneheaded. Now I've got to move in and I've got to have some response. God has a plan. And he sees where Andy's at, uh, what's today? March 25th of 2018. He sees where Andy is now, and he knows where he wants me to be, and so he's got a plan to get me from here to there. And that plan may often, may, may include pain. It may be the only way that I learn a valuable truth about God that I will not learn when I'm on the mountaintop. When things are going great, and I read a passage of scripture that God is with me in the valley of the shadows of death, Like it's hard for me to grasp what that truth means and the significance of that truth while I'm sitting up here on the mountaintop enjoying life. But when I find myself in that valley, all of a sudden I'm gonna understand, if I'm watching for it, I'm gonna see God's glory revealed in a much different way because all of a sudden God is meeting me in my need where I'm at in the valley. And I'm gonna say, you know what? God is with me in the valley of the shadow of death. I know now, and it may be that as I'm coming through it, I look back and I said, I know now that I could uh, fear no evil for you, God, you are with me. It's no longer just a head knowledge, but now I believe it and I know it. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And all of a sudden, my faith has taken a huge leap because God allowed some temporary pain to come into my life to teach me a huge truth about who he is and how awesome and magnificent he is. I learn how powerful God is for all eternity by a fraction of a moment in this life of enduring some pain. And sometimes that's the way God operates. Sometimes those are the best lessons we learn. And I use this example a lot, but the disciples get into a boat in Mark chapter five. They get into a boat because Jesus told them to get into a boat. They get in a boat, start sailing across the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You can literally look at anywhere in the Sea of Galilee. You can look from one point to the other. There's no place in the Sea of Galilee where you can't see land. It is a lake. I mean, it's what we would consider a lake in, in, in Missouri. It is small, seven miles long, three miles wide. And in the middle of this lake, this huge storm blows in. And these seasoned, grizzled sailors are afraid that they're going to die. And they literally tell Jesus that. Do you not care that we're about to perish? They literally were convinced they were dead men. Jesus comes up and what's he do? He says, peace be still. And like that, that storm is over. Now, do you think that if those disciples were sitting on the shore, having some fire-grilled fish sitting in a circle. And Jesus said, hey, guys, you know, we spend a lot of time on the Sea of Galilee. Did you know that I command the wind and the waves? And they'd have been like, well, that's cool. But instead, they experience a truth that no doubt when they found themselves in the storms of life in the book of Acts, they looked back on and said, you know what? We serve the God who calms the winds and the waves. If he can do that in that situation, 
there's nothing changing his sovereignty over this situation. That I have nothing to fear. So sometimes, sometimes our theology will tell us, well, if you're enduring hardship, obviously it's because you have sinned. And, and, and good theology says this, just because we're enduring hardship doesn't mean that it's always sin. Doesn't mean, and I'm not, I'm not saying for a moment that we're ever without sin. We are, you know, that, that sin is present in our life. But what I'm saying is, sometimes what we're suffering from isn't a direct result of sin. The disciples on the water in the midst of a storm, they didn't find themselves in that predicament because they were sinning. God allowed that to happen. Job doesn't find himself in the current predicament because of some hidden sin in, her life. It was in his life. It was just something God allowed to, have, to happen so that God could be glorified. And that thing, and that 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 his his name, that 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 he, you know, that that it would just be something that would be used, and so he's in charge. Now, the apostle Paul, he prayed three times that a thorn in his flesh should be removed. Three times he prayed, God, remove this thorn from my side. What God tell him three times? Nope, it's not happening. What was what was the apostle's response to it? Well, he 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 says this. My, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my grace, this is what God's telling Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And what's Paul's response to that? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, he, well, then I am strong. How's he strong? Well, he's strong through Christ in him. You know, what a response that he was willing to accept this mystery of God's will. This gray area of life where Paul wanted this to be removed and yet it wouldn't be, he accepted that. But build that, he leaves no room for that. You know, Paul could have very easily gotten lost in, in, in this idea that, that, that I'm just discouraged because God's not removed this from me. I'm discouraged because I prayed and, it, and he's, not answered, he's not answered the way that I've wanted him to. But instead we see a much different response in Paul. Bildad, he's saying, you know, there's no room for mystery, that he was confident that there was some sin down in Job that he was not, uh, that, he, that Job just really wasn't willing to admit. And so Bildad visits Job with one reminder of another after death. How's that for being a counselor? You're, li- you're literally living in a trash heap, scraping yourself and your sores with, jo- with a broken jar, a, 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 a clay jar, and, he, and your buddy who's come to comfort and sympathize with you just gives you reminders of death. And he, and he uses uh, several different languages here. We won't spend the time going through them. But he, he describes Job's dying in four different word pictures. By a light going out, if you look at uh, verses 5 and 6, he says, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is, is put out. He, of a person being trapped. 
And the implication here is that Job has a scheme he's not willing to admit. He's portrayed as a fugitive and he's uh, portrayed as an, as, a, as an uprooted tree. And then finally, so there's all these pictures of death. And then finally, Bildad just kind of lays down the hammer in verse 21. And he says, surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. So you're dying, Job. Your light is gone out. You are trapped and you are, 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 are uh, uh, being, you're a fugitive and you're an uprooted tree. And Job, you don't even know God. Everything you're enduring now are those that have no hope in God, of, of those who, who knows not God. And here sits Job, having endured all this loss, and his body covered in these sores, and, is, and enduring pain at terrible levels. And this guy has the audacity to speak this kind of garbage into his life. Now, question. Why would God permit something like this and this whole situation to be, to, to be in his word. I mean, because if you're like, most of us want to be like, we want to think God is this God of love and happiness and joy, and this does not fit neat, neatly into the box that we have placed God in. And here's why. Number one, there's a lot of gray areas in life. Number two, we're going to suffer in life. And number three, there are a whole lot of bildads running around this world. People who just, and, and Zophars and Eliphazes for that matter, People who don't live in, they view life in this gray, in this black and white. It's either right or it's wrong. It's this or it's that. You're sinning or you're not. You're blessed or you're not. But here we find this, this spirit of, of Bildad still lives and it surfaces when we can't offer a word of encouragement or affirmation. When all we want to do is be critical and criticize and if we're not careful, it happens in us that we're the ones who become Bildads. You know, we can't look at this and say, man, that guy's a jerk. And you know what? Here's the truth. Sometimes we can be jerks too. We can be jerks when we're not showing grace to those who really need to be handled in grace. When we, when we want to be handled in grace, but we refuse to treat others the same way. Whenever we could offer a word of affirmation or encouragement, but instead all we offer are words of criticism and correction. There are times that, that we need to recognize that we can be Bildads. And Bildad, and then we see Job's response in, in chapter 19. Bildad begin, began his lecture with the words, how long? And notice how Job begins his. Verse two, how long... So again, he's borrowing, I, I just love Job. Like I, you know, have you ever done that, Use someone else's words against them? Bildad says, how long, Job, are you going to go on with all those endless words? Job says, how long, Bildad? And look what he says, how long will you torment me? It's hard to think sometimes that maybe, maybe we do the same. But listen to what Job says. And listen to the words that he uses. How long will you torment me and break me into pieces with words? These 10 times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? 
Think how much relief would have been offered to Job if one of them would have said, hey guys, let's pump the brakes a little bit and let's just hear and listen to what Job has to say. But never once do they do that. They are so convinced that their assumptions are correct that they never stop to listen to the truth. And how much relief would it, offer, would it have been to Job to say, Job, we're your friends and we genuinely want what's best for you. So you just talk to us about what's going on. He's been talking, they just haven't been listening. So we've just got to be careful, uh, you know, that, that, that sometimes we can, you know, that, 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 that there are these four verbs that, that Job uses, torment, to crush or to break, to rebuke or to insult, to wrong. And, and, and these aren't wrong things. Like, to be honest with you, reproof can be, or correction can be a good thing when it's communicated correctly. We all need accountability. There's not anybody in here that like says, you know what, my sin radar is perfect. I don't need anybody to hold me accountable. We all need that. We need people who can see things in us that we refuse to see in ourselves and challenge us there. So Job's not, he's not slamming the door on this rebuke, but these guys are getting out of control. But we need that accountability. If reproof comes from the right person, the right way, and done with the right motive, we would be wise to accept it and be grateful for it. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's referring to that accountability when they're calling our attention to these things. So the tongue can be wise, and it can be of great benefit and encouragement to others. But the tongue can, can also be deadly. The tongue can, can torment, it can crush, it can insult, it can wrong. And the, the tongue is powerful. And Bildad, he thinks Job's sin. Job realized there was no sin and, and, and saw what he was going through at, was a mystery. And when you add this mystery to the silence of God and this feeling of distance from the presence of God that Job has shared with us earlier in the text, then life can become borderline unbearable. Like we can get to the point that we genuinely feel lost. Like I know that I've not done any sin to result in this, yet this thing has happened and I confess that I'm in this mysterious gray area of life, but at the same time, you know, I feel like God's over here and I'm all the way over here and there's this disconnect there and no, more, no matter how much I pray at a guy when, you know, a couple Wednesday nights ago, he's like, man, I just keep, I feel like God wants me to do something. I just keep praying about it, keep praying about it, but you know, nothing's materialized. And I'm like, man, maybe God just, wanting you to just draw closer to him and pursue him more because there's something God wants you to learn or wants you to understand before you take this next step. And so for, you know, and Job recognized, you know, there's this mystery here, but his, refi- his friends refused to cut him any slack. I want to read a poem to you um, this morning that, that, that it's called The Builder. And it says this, as I watched them tear a building down, a gang of men in a busy town, With a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and the sidewall fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled and the men you'd hired if you, and the men you'd hire if you wanted to build? He gave a laugh and said, no indeed, just common labor is all I need. I can easily wreck in a day or two what builders have taken years to do. And I thought to myself as I went my way, Which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works works with care, measuring life by rule and square? Am I shaping my work to a well-made plan, patiently doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker who walks to town, 
content with the labor of tearing down. O Lord, let my life and my labors be that which will build for eternity. Job's friends were wreckers. They were wreckers. And the question I'd ask is, are we wreckers or are we builders? You see, wreckers often wreck unintentionally. They don't set out with the frame of mind to say, you know what, I'm gonna mess some things up today. Like, I'm gonna ruin somebody's day. They don't do it intentionally, but they do wind up doing it nonetheless. Verbal abuse is committed most often by those with huge blind spots. You don't intend to do so, but you're built doing it in spite of your best intention. But building, building is an intentional work. You know, when I watched them tear this house down on the corner, well, actually this house and when the house burned over here across the street from the church, I watched them as they t- tore it down. You know what they did? They brought in some big equipment and they just started knocking walls down. That's it. No, no, no real plan. They, they knew over here they needed to be careful. Over here there was nothing for them to hit. So they just started grabbing stuff with, the, with whatever that bucket thing was called. And they would grab it and they would rip. And they'd grab and rip and grab and rip and grab and rip. They didn't care. But you know what? One of these days we're going to build over here. It's going to take us a while to develop a plan. Because we're not just going to go buy some two-by-fours and start saying, well, let's build this. Oh, well, it'd be a great idea. And then knock a wall out and start, we want a plan in place. And it's going to take us a whole lot longer to build, build that place than it took for the guys to tear down the property, the property that was on there. Building is intentional. We are intentional in the building up of one another. We are intentional in the words. We are looking for opportunities to bring encouragement and hope to people's lives. Wrecking often happens unintentionally, but to build, anytime we build, it is an intentional, intentional action. It's purposeful. And so as we go through the rest of chapter 19, and we'll just kind of go through Job's, Job's problem right now is that, you know, he feels like God is silent and distant, and, and then he's dealing with the absence and resistance of others. Here, you know, his, all his fr- other friends are gone. These three friends, they're just fighting him tooth and nail. And Job just longs to, to, to just have an audience before God. He just longs that his words be written down for posterity. And, and the same things that Job is feeling in chapter 19, many of us feel in our own life, that we feel sometimes like God is silent and distant, that our friends have turned against us. And listen, I want to tell you this morning, the, there is a future that is brighter and better than, than one you could ever imagine. In the end, God wins and so will we. Job will be vindicated. All of Eliphaz and Bildad's and Zophar's will be judged, silenced, and forgotten. In all his misery and suffering, Job had not lost sight of who was right and who was wrong. I want to share with you two verses. The first one is verse 25 of chapter 19. So all this Job's longing and his feeling of abandonment by friends and the distance and the silence from God, and this is what Job has to say. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Underline that, highlight that, circle that, star that, 
asterisk that, whatever you need to do to, to, to remind you of that verse. In the midst of everything that was going wrong, Job said, actually, he says a couple of things um, that, that are just, I mean, absolutely powerful. He says in chapter 13, though he slay me, though God may slay me, yet I will hope in him. Then in chapter 19, he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. I know the one in whom I have hope in. And he says, and he tells these guys in verse 29, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Job knew the judgment was coming. He knew it. He knew it was coming for him. He knew it was coming for them. But he knew he would be vindicated. He knew that his Redeemer lived. Now I want to wrap up this morning with two quick lessons. Number one is this. There is nothing like hope in the truth to clarify perspective and keep you going. Now let's break that down. There is nothing like hope. What is our hope in? You see, we could be like Job and say, you know what, I'm a good guy. Like everybody thinks well of me. I'm good. But then what would have happened when all his life came crumbling down around him? Where was his hope then? Could he continue to hope in the goodness of God or the, his own goodness? Think about this. How many of you had said, you know what, maybe it's New Year's resolution. Re re resolution. Some of you say, you know what, I'm going to try to be good this year. Or maybe you had a bad week and you're like, you know what, this week, this week I'm going to be good. How long does good usually last in your life? I mean, really. Or maybe you've made some bad decisions and you're like, I'm going to start making good decisions and then it's not long before you're making bad decisions again. We cannot count on ourselves being good. We need something greater than us to hope in. And that's something greater. You know, this is Palm Sunday. This is the day that Jesus made his triumphant entry and people are throwing down their coats and they're singing Hosanna to the King. And guess what they're saying seven days later? Crucify him. We can't trust ourselves. We need something greater than ourselves to hope in. And that hope is in Christ Jesus because he doesn't change. When he tells us that if we'll confess our sins, that he'll forgive them and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it doesn't matter that maybe we caught him on a bad Tuesday. Well, you know, Andy, if you'd have caught me on Monday, I'd have forgiven you. But this is Tuesday, and I'm a little busy, and I'm pretty grumpy and cranky. So if you can come back tomorrow, maybe then there'll be forgiveness of sins. That's not God. He doesn't change. He's not whimsical. He holds to his promises. So there's nothing like hope in the truth to clarify perspective and keep us going. And sometimes the truth is that we endure pain because God allows it in our life to teach us something about him. And we need to understand and we need that perspective clarified. So we say, you know what, God, I'm enduring this pain. If it's because of consequence to sin, reveal that sin to me that I can confess it. But if, God, you're teaching me something magnificent about yourself, open my eyes that I can see it. That I don't develop this woe is me attitude where I'm focused so much on what you have taken away or so much on what you afflicted me with that I can't see the greater purpose and what you desire to do in it. I would say this, man, 
And it, I don't know when it started. I'm part of the generation, but man, we can be soft. And we gotta toughen up. And understand that sometimes in the mystery of God's will, things are going to happen. And they're not gonna be comfortable and they're not gonna feel good and God's not gonna hand us a trophy and a pat on the back and say thank you for participating. That there are times that we're gonna have to grit our teeth and we're gonna put our hands to the plow and say, God, I'm in some pretty rocky, difficult soil right now, but you're gonna get me through. That right now this road is bumpy and it's obstacle after obstacle and I don't know if I've sat them there because of my own sin or you've placed them there so I can learn some grand truth about who you are, but God, give me eyes to see what you need me to see. If I need to see my sin, help me to see that. If I need to see your grace and your glory, Help me to see that. But God, help me to see whatever it is that I need to see. Help me to have a clear perspective and help me to have that I can keep going. That I don't be discouraged. That I finish the race. That I fight the good fight. That I finish my course. That I've run the race that you, God, have set before me. But we have to have hope in the right thing. And that hope is not in us. That hope is not in our good deeds. Our hope is not in our ability to make wise decisions. Our hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we're gonna, we're gonna build up next Sunday. Amen. Easter is the greatest holiday for a Christian. Christmas is fine. Christmas is fine. It's the birth of our Savior but his birth means nothing if the resurrection never happened. He's just another baby. And that resurrection is power. Paul says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And folks, listen, that same power that, that, wrote, that, that brought Jesus back from the dead, that same power can be ours today. That same power that same power can give us hope to keep going and help us to have the right perspective. But we've gotta have hope and it's gotta be in the right thing. And then number two is this, there is nothing like the lack of assurance to haunt your steps and make you afraid. You see, there's two ends of this coin. You have some that are you know, here this morning, and basically we all fit into two groups. Now, we all may be a part of one group, we all may be a part of another group, but basically there's two groups. There's those with hope and there's those without. There's those who have placed their hope and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of their souls, and there's those that are not. There are those right now who are living with hope with the potential of clear perspective, and there's those right now whose steps are marked by uncertainty. There are those right now who have tried to be good and good hasn't gotten them anywhere. There are those that have been good and a week later they find themselves making the same bad choices and decisions they were making seven days ago when they decided they were gonna try so valiantly to, to, to be good. But we have hope and then we have lack of the, the lack of hope, the lack of assurance that haunts our steps and makes us afraid. And if we're not careful, you know, we can, we can, we can miss out on this sight that, that, that if we are without Jesus Christ in our life, that our steps are marked by that uncertainty. And at night when we're laying our head on our pillow, the thoughts of our future may haunt us. 
Maybe today you go home and, and Sunday's nap day at the Reigns household and maybe you're gonna go home and you're gonna lay your head down and you're gonna lay your head down and you're gonna come to the conclusion and, and, uh, that, that you're not sure where you're gonna spend eternity. And here's the truth for us this morning. I know that truth because that's my truth. Like I laid in bed one night and I could not convince myself that I, that I was gonna go to heaven. I just laid there in bed and I fretted over where I was gonna spend eternity, about whether or not I was saved. And here's the deal, man, I grew up in church. I read my Bible every night. But I did not have that relationship with Jesus Christ. I was trying to do all the good stuff, but I wasn't yet, I had not yet placed my faith in the one who was ultimately good. It was all about me. It was all about what God could do for me. It was all about what I could do for God. And it was never about, for me, what God had already done for Andy. We're going to wrap all this up in a nutshell. Is this. Chapter 18, if we look back and you read through that, that basically describes what life's like for those who have no hope. There's no fire. The tent has gone down. There's sulfur in their camp. Basically, it describes hell. You go back and read through the text, and it gives us some descriptors. A fire that doesn't shine. Torment. And then you have chapter 18, or 19, where Job's kind of admitting some of this stuff. About how he's tormented. And, but then at the end of the chapter, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that's where our hope is. If we don't have that assurance, if you can't say this morning, I know that my Redeemer lives. I'm not saying that I know that Ashley's Redeemer lives. I know that Teresa's Redeemer lives. If I don't know that my Redeemer lives, I don't have hope. I have a lot of uncertainty. I have a lot of texts in the scriptures that tell me that that. There is a way, a place that God has prepared for those that have placed their faith and trust in him. And there's a place that, that he never even really prepared for us. A place called hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I know we don't like to talk about that. But listen, I'd be remiss if all I did was say, here's all the good things about God. I hope you're on the right path. And I didn't say, listen, if you're not on the right path, there is a place that you will go that is not pleasant. And that is a vast understatement. I want us to be able to say this morning, every single person here, I know that my Redeemer lives. I'll tell you this this morning. You can bring in the brightest and best minds, and I may not be able to go toe-to-toe with them academically, but I can say this. There's not any person who will ever walk through the doors of my house or this church or this community or this world that will ever convince me otherwise that Jesus is not who he says he is. It will not happen. I know my Redeemer lives. And that's what I'm asking you this morning. Do you know that your Redeemer lives? I'm not talking about if you remember at some point that you prayed some prayer when you were six. I'm talking right now as a grown adult, are you confident in your salvation? Are you assured this morning that you are saved. Can you beyond a shadow of a doubt say, I know that I am saved this morning. I know it's not based on a, you know, someone telling me I was. I know that I have placed my faith and trust in Christ. 
And if you can't say that this morning, please, please, please follow a long line of people, Miss Rosie being the latest, that has said, you know what, I can't say that with all certainty. But I know there's a Redeemer. And today I want to say that my Redeemer lives. Can you say that this morning? Would you stand? Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence this morning. And Lord, I know that I have gone over my allotted time this morning. But my prayer and most desire, and I know yours is as well, is that none would perish and all would come to repentance. That all these people that you have, that you bled and that you died for, that you rose again from the grave to declare victory over Satan, sin, and death. All these people that you endured all that suffering for, your only desire is that they would hold fast to you and place their faith and trust in what you have done for them. That they would come to you and they would confess you as Lord and Savior. That they would come to you for the forgiveness of their sins. That they would no longer walk in shackles and chains. That they would no longer be prisoner to their sin and their shame. But God, that today they would be set free through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That today that they would know life and that they would know freedom and, and the thing that they have been settling for, this thing called life that we think we know would be a, a distant memory as they begin to walk in the truth and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Father, I confess this morning that one of the longest, most difficult walks I ever made was stepping out in a church and walking down an aisle because I knew people were probably looking. But God, what I didn't know was that people were praying. What I didn't know was that inside hearts are rejoicing because people have been praying for me. And God, there are people here this morning that need to come to a saving relationship, need to make this same walk. And God, it's not people with judgmental eyes casting toward them, but God, it is people with hearts that are rejoicing that the lost has come home, that the prodigal has returned to the Father. And Father, I pray this morning, if there's one here today that has strayed or wandered away, if there's one here today that can't look back and definitively say, I know that my Redeemer lives, that today would be the day that we could come alongside the angels in heaven and rejoice that another child has returned. So Father, I pray today that you would give courage to those that you are calling to step out and, and to confess you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you would bring courage to them and that you would bring comfort to them knowing that there is a church here who loves them and cherishes them and wants nothing more than to see them come to the saving knowledge of the one who changes everything. So God, I pray that God, as we open up this time of response, that we would come and say together that my Redeemer lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.